This is the Bible Book Club. I'm Heather. And I'm Susan. And we're in the book of 1 Samuel. Welcome to the club. Last episode, Saul was given the opportunity to find favor with God. The instructions to destroy the Amalekites were very clear, but Saul did not obey. God's disappointed. Samuel is mad, and all Saul's willing to do is make a bunch of excuses. He blamed, he justified, he minimized. Never did he repent. In fact, Saul was more concerned with Samuel keeping up appearances than anything else. God had given Saul every chance to change, but his ways were set. Samuel and Saul depart, and they never see each other again. All right, here's the setup for this episode. The reign of Saul as king of Israel does not end overnight. It was a gradual process. Much happened in between with several lessons for us. The first point God makes in the transfer of kings is that Saul was unfit because he did not love the Lord first. Because the Lord was not first in Saul's life, his position as king became a source of pride and insecurity to him. And you're going to see that he's going to begin to fear losing his position. He's going to become jealous, suspicious, irrational, and violently unstable. Now, another point that God wants to make in this transfer of kings is that Saul, the bad example of a king, is a foil for David, the good example. Um, They're a contrast between right and wrong. And the difference between a heart for self and a heart for God. Now, the last point we can take away from this transfer is that the people of Israel got what they wanted. They wanted a king for the wrong reasons. So God gave them a king who wanted to be king for the wrong reasons. Next, God is going to give them a king who wants to be king for the right reasons. And a thousand years later, God's finally going to give the world the king they really need, a savior. The lesson we can learn from what is about to take place between Saul and David is this. God gives people opportunities and choices. If we reject God and the opportunities he provides, he will choose another. The loss is ours. God's will will be done with or without us. All right. Scene one. God sees what man cannot Chapter 16. The Lord said to Samuel, How long will you mourn for Saul since I have rejected him as king over Israel? Fill your horn with oil and be on your way. I am sending you to Jesse of Bethlehem. I have chosen one of his sons to be king. Ah, Bethlehem. Do we not already love Bethlehem from the book of Ruth season eight? Bethlehem means house of bread. Now keep in mind, that bread is also a symbol for Christ, who said in John 3, 6, Then Jesus declared, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me will never go hungry, and whoever believes in me will never be thirsty. So why do I love Bethlehem? Jesus, the bread of life, was born in Bethlehem, the house of bread. As was David, the king with a heart for the Lord, as was Ruth's son, David's grandfather, which is one of the sweetest stories in the Bible. So go back and listen to season eight. Well, if that's all not a Bible bender, then I don't know what is. Exactly. Listen to the prophet Micah. 
because he saw what would one day come from this small town of Bethlehem. When he said, But you, Bethlehem, Ephrathah, though you are small among the clans of Judah, out of you will come for me one who will be ruler over Israel, whose origins are from old, from ancient times. We do not have a flashy God. He uses humble places and humble people to do great things. We, on the other hand, are attracted to flashy. We like, follow, and idolize affluence and influencers. But God brings us back to the small town because he moves undetected in quiet corners with faithful followers. Continuing in verse two, but Samuel said, how can I go? If Saul hears about it, he will kill me. The Lord said, take a heifer with you and say, I have come to sacrifice to the Lord. Invite Jesse to the sacrifice and then I will show you what to do. You are to anoint for me the one I indicate. All right. See if you can empathize with me with Samuel because this is so interesting. When we left Samuel in the last episode, he was mourning for Saul. And here he is when we open in the scene, he's still mourning. We don't know how much time has passed, but what we do know is that God thinks it's been enough time. He wants Samuel to get on with it and anoint another king. But you got to feel bad for Samuel, because remember, Samuel never really wanted to anoint any king. He didn't think Israel should have a king. Um, But then he became friends with this boy king who grew up and he's missing him. He's mourning for him. And it, it may not be that he's physically missing him. He's missing what he could have been. He's mourning for the Saul that could have been that is now a king who he's afraid of and could potentially kill him. He tells Samuel, I, I, he tells God, I can't go because he might kill me. The implication is that, that Samuel has observed this spiritually bereft side of Saul, which is, you know, kind of a little deranged, vengeful, evil. And, and how could that boy, that innocent boy have become this, this man. And I think probably many of us have been in that circumstance where you, you have a friend and you guys are kindred spirits in your faith. And then all of a sudden they do something that makes no sense. Um, and kind of leaves you feeling like, man, I, I thought we were studying the same God here. I thought we were on the same page and now you're off doing something that I can't even fathom. And you outgrow the friendship, right? We've all outgrown a friendship. Or you mourn the friendship because you can't reach them. And Samuel can't reach Saul for God anymore. He's tried. And Saul has chosen a different path. And that's sad when you see someone going down the wrong path and you can't bring them back. Because, you know, in the end, there's going to be consequences for them. It's going to be painful to watch. The threat from Saul must have been real. So to protect both Samuel and David, God tells Samuel to offer a sacrifice, which would allow Samuel to meet with Jesse and David without raising any suspicion. Continuing in verse four, Samuel did what the Lord said. When he arrived at Bethlehem, the elders of the town trembled when they met him. They asked, do you come in peace? Samuel replied, yes, in peace. I have come to sacrifice to the Lord. Consecrate yourselves and come to the sacrifice with me. Then he consecrated Jesse and his sons and invited them to the sacrifice. When they arrived, Samuel saw Eliab and thought, surely the Lord's anointed stands before 
the Lord. But the Lord said to Samuel, do not consider his appearance or his height, for I have rejected him. The Lord does not look at the things people look at. People look at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. Then Jesse called Abinadab and had him pass in front of Samuel. But Samuel said, the Lord has not chosen this one either. Jesse then had Shammah pass by, but Samuel said, nor has the Lord chosen this one. Jesse had seven of his sons pass before Samuel, but Samuel said to him, the Lord has not chosen these. So he asked Jesse, are these all the sons you have? There is still the youngest, Jesse answered, but he's tending the sheep. Okay, so Samuel's a bigwig, and um, he's a prophet. You know, sometimes those prophets are rather intimidating. So the town trembled in fear when Samuel arrived, probably because he was known for judging, and a visit could mean they were in trouble. Now, it says that David was the youngest. The word for youngest in Hebrew can also mean smallest, which is not to say that he wasn't strong, but it is a contrast to Israel's obsession with height in what they wanted for a king. This is why Samuel assumes that Eliab, Jesse's oldest, is God's man. He was tall. But God says, do not look at his height because I look at his heart. Now, David is the precursor to the greater king, to the Messiah, who also lacked the appearance of what the people might want in a king. Isaiah described Jesus this way. Isaiah 53 verse 2. He grew up before him like a tender shoot and like a root out of dry ground. He had no beauty or majesty to attract us to him, nothing in his appearance that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by mankind, a man of suffering and familiar with pain. Like one from whom people hide their faces, he was despised and we held him in low esteem. The good king, the good believer is not necessarily the one who looks good. It is the one with a good heart. Jesus described himself as humble in heart in Matthew eleven twenty eight. Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. Jesus says we must learn from him, for he is gentle and humble in the heart. Humility is clearly a goal for us. Now back to our story in 1 Samuel chapter 16, continuing in verse 11. Samuel said, send for him. We will not sit down until he arrives. So he sent for him and had him brought in. He was glowing with health and had a fine appearance and handsome features. Then the Lord said, rise and anoint him. This is the one. So Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the presence of his brothers. And from that day on, the spirit of the Lord came powerfully upon David. Samuel then went to Ramah. All right. So let's go back to how do we know Jesse? And what is the lineage here? Jesse is the son of Obed who was the son of Boaz and Ruth from season eight of Bible Book Club. Obed is from the tribe of Judah, and Ruth was a foreigner, a Moabite. Boaz was the son of Salmon and Rahab in the story of Jericho from the book of Joshua in season six. Now we're going way back. Rahab was the prostitute who saved the spies, and it is thought that Salmon was one of the spies. So Jesse is Boaz and Ruth's grandson and Salmon and Rahab's great-grandson. Jesse and his son David come from a stellar lineup of faithful 
but very imperfect people. Now, Jesse had seven sons, and as the Israelites placed much importance on birth order, they were presented one by one until there was only one left. Contrary to the culture, God often chose someone other than the firstborn. For example, God chose Abel and Seth over Cain. He chose Isaac over Ishmael, Jacob over Esau, Judah over three older brothers, Ephraim over Manasseh, and now David over his seven older brothers. The point is that God looks at the heart, not birth order, height, age, or looks. God only looks at the heart. If only we could do the same. Exactly. Wouldn't it be great to see people's hearts? Mm -hmm. All right, back to David. Now that we know who Jesse is and where David comes from, let's go back to David. It says that David was healthy and handsome. Now the Hebrew interpretation is ruddy, meaning color in his cheeks, like a redness to his cheeks or red tint to his hair. Now I never thought of David as a redhead, but I do now. It is implied that he had beautiful eyes and a pleasant countenance with sweetness as well as majesty in his face. In this, he was a type of Christ in the way he foreshadows. And he was really young, in my opinion, around 15 to 18 years old is what most of the commentaries believe. Samuel would have never picked David out of a lineup. He did not look the part of warrior king. And that's what kings were back then. They were primarily military leaders. He was little more than a boy, healthy, but, you know, I imagine not quite filled out, small compared to Saul. Sometimes looks are so deceiving that we actually overlook what we are looking for. Whether it's a person to marry, a job, a church, or even a good friend. Well, Samuel anointed David, and from that day on, the Spirit of the Lord came powerfully upon him. No one, but perhaps his family, knows that David has been anointed, just like with Saul's anointing. For a time, it was a secret. Now, anointing with oil in the Old Testament can be compared to anointing with the Holy Spirit in the New Testament. Both anointings symbolize God's choosing and empowering people for His purposes. However, the anointing of the Holy Spirit is permanent for those who have received it through faith in Jesus Christ. So think about that. You, like David, have been anointed. All right, scene two, David's light begins to shine. Verse 14, now the spirit of the Lord had departed from Saul and an evil spirit from the Lord tormented him. Lots of commentaries on this. David got the spirit of the Lord and Saul got an evil spirit from the Lord. The evil spirit from the Lord tormented Saul. What does that mean? Well, it could mean that because God withdrew his spirit and hand of protection from Saul's life, an evil spirit was able to attack him. Or it could also mean that Saul felt a sense of foreboding with the departure of the Lord in his life. So left with this periodic bad feeling, you know how you get that feeling in the pit of your stomach, Saul began to suffer in his mind. He became paranoid and deeply depressed. We're going to find out in coming chapters. It does not mean that God removed Saul's salvation. We don't know if Saul was not a believer or if Saul was a believer, but a troubled one. 
We just don't know. We will never know until we get to heaven. Now, there's another difference between David and Saul. The spirit came upon Saul for specific tasks, mostly involving battles. This was also the case for several of the judges, like Samson in season seven, who was, again, wishy-washy in his faith like Saul. In comparison, the spirit was with David from the day of his anointing on. David's heart seems to have put him in a much better position with the spirit. The point Samuel is making is that God is with David and has left Saul. Continuing in verse 15, Saul's attendant said to him, see, an evil spirit from God is tormenting you. Let our Lord command his servants here to search for someone who can play the lyre. He will play when the evil spirit from God comes on you and you'll feel better. So Saul said to his attendants, find someone who plays well and bring him to me. One of the servants answered, I have seen the son of Jesse of Bethlehem who knows how to play the lyre. He is a brave man and a warrior. He speaks well and is a fine looking man. And the Lord is with him. David's resume is growing. He's brave. He's a warrior. He's well-spoken, fine looking, and it's becoming well-known. The Lord is with him. Saul is losing touch with the Lord. Meanwhile, David is growing in the Lord. Even the servants at court can see it. The point for us is this. Those who know God can usually recognize God in you. And it's very convicting thought. What do people see when they see you? In your service to our king, are you on the way in the way out. Verse 19. Then Saul sent messengers to Jesse and said, send me your son, David, who is with the sheep. So Jesse took a donkey loaded with bread, a skin of wine and a young goat and sent them with his son, David to Saul. David came to Saul and entered his service. Saul liked him very much, and David became one of his armor bearers. Then Saul sent word to Jesse, saying, Allow David to remain in my service, for I am pleased with him. Whenever the spirit from God came on Saul, David would take up his lyre and play. Then relief would come to Saul. He would feel better and the evil spirit would leave him. Okay, this is really interesting. God positions David at court. Remember, Moses was raised in Pharaoh's palace to give him the opportunity to grow into the leader needed to defy Pharaoh and save his people. Similarly, this country shepherd, David, is brought to the city and into the royal court for needed job experience and exposure to the politics of the day. Saul, meanwhile, is oblivious and self-absorbed. He thinks David is there just for his pleasure. And certainly, Saul's tormented heart was eased by the presence of God in David's music. The fascinating thing is, even today, God draws people to him in worship through music. Now, had Saul not been so fixated on his own pleasure, he might have taken advantage of David's presence spiritually. He could have learned from David. In fact, God had placed at least three faithful men in Saul's life that he could have learned from. He's had Samuel, he's got his son Jonathan, and now he has David. All will fail to influence Saul. Saul has given himself over to a different path and will not turn back to the Lord. Meanwhile, David, his accomplishments just keep growing. Despite being the youngest in his family, David doesn't seem to have any insecurities or any inferiority complexes, which is interesting because if you remember some of those judges like Gideon, they did. 
David is willing to serve God in whatever capacity is needed. He is content to keep his father's sheep, which is was a super humble task um, that usually went to the runt of the family. <laughs> and out with the sheep, you get no one to admire your work except the sheep. It doesn't it doesn't go very far. So he was out there playing his harp for the sheep. Exactly. The I don't know how he got so good. <laughs> a ba here and there, and that's <laughs> it. Not a hurrah. But he also doesn't hesitate to sing for the king, which is a prominent job that brings lots of attention. It really doesn't matter to David. Here's another curious thing. You have to wonder if David, the shepherd of sheep, was thinking when he was called to court, oh, wow, this is why I've been anointed by Samuel. I'm going to get to, you know, play for the king, you know, because to become the king's musician, it was a big deal for the likes of him. He may have thought this is as high as I'm going to get. And, you know, hooray for me. No matter what David was feeling about the position, he just simply obeyed. He didn't make it about him. And because of his heart and his obedience, David finds favor wherever he goes. David's heart and attitude make him winsome with God and with people. The king, Saul, ends up liking him. Jonathan, the prince, is going to, in the future, we'll find out, like him, despite the fact that David is his rival for the crown. The servants like him, and they bring him to the attention of the king. Even his brothers must like him. David and Joseph, if you'll remember, back way back in, with Joseph, both had a lot of brothers. But with David, there is no mention of sibling rivalry. Unlike Joseph, whose brothers were so jealous with him that they sold him into slavery. David does not get that from his brothers. He's going to get one kind of, um, you know, set down from his brother, but that's it. They really support him um, going forward. David is an obedient son, a good shepherd, a gifted musician, and David is winsome. So what's next for our rising star? How will David take center stage? Scene three. God sets the stage to make David a star. Every great hero needs a problem to solve, someone to rescue, and an enemy to defeat. And Israel's enemy in this scene has been a source of contention for a long time. We met the Philistines way back in Genesis with Abraham. Now, Abraham's fear of the Philistines was so great that he lied to them about his wife, Sarah, saying she was his sister. Then incredibly, Isaac did the exact same thing. He was so afraid of the Philistines, he lied to them about his wife, Rebecca, saying that she was his sister. This is how, like, history kind of, repeats itself. <laughs> well, and these people are so intimidating. The Philistines are intimidating. Now, when Joshua led Israel into the promised land to defeat the Canaanites, they settled in the central highlands. The Israelites failed to displace the Philistines who lived in five capital cities located in the coastal plains. So you have to wonder, like, did the Israelites avoid trying to defeat the Philistines because they were kind of out on the outskirts and everybody was afraid of them? We don't know. But listen to Joshua 13.1. When Joshua had grown old, the Lord said to him, you are now very old and there are still very large areas of land to be taken over. This is the land that remains all the regions of the Philistines and the Geshurites from the Shahor River on the east of Egypt to the territory of Ekron in the north, all of it counted as Canaanite, though held by five Philistine rulers in Gaza, Ashdod, Ashkelon, Gath, and Ekron. Okay, so 
During Joshua's time, they never attempted to defeat the Philistines in these five main cities. And we know these cities were a problem. By the time we get to the book of Judges in season seven of the podcast, the Philistines had grown into a formidable force. Three judges fought to save Israel from Philistine oppression, Shamgar, Jephthah, and Samson. All of these had some success against the Philistines, but not enough to displace them totally from the promised land. When we began our journey in 1 Samuel, it was clear that they are still the number one threat. They actually sold the Ark of the Covenant in chapter 4 of 1 Samuel. In fact, the threat of the Philistines was a driving factor in the Israelites' desire for a king. A king would give them visible protection. Saul tall and strong, was that image of false security. So picture this, because as I said before, God has a sense of humor. Israel got the king they wanted. Saul, according to 1 Samuel 9, was a head taller than everyone else. But just when Israel thinks they are big stuff, the Philistines, their threat for oppression, show up with a guy way more than a head taller. Goliath was estimated to be over nine feet tall. The irony here is too much. God gave them the king they wanted, tall and strong. Then God set the stage with an enemy comically taller and stronger. God is going to put an exclamation point on People look at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart because Saul's heart, big, tall Saul's heart is going to become paralyzed by fear while the boy, the little guy with the good heart will be undaunted despite the reputation of the Philistine army and despite the size, the height of Goliath heart overcomes height. David's heart belongs to God and his eyes see the world and the enemy through a totally different lens. Chapter 17. Now the Philistines gathered their forces for war and assembled at Soko in Judah. They pitched camp at Ephes Damim between Soka and Ashka. Saul and the Israelites assembled and camped in the valley of Elah and drew up their battle line to meet the Philistines. The Philistines occupied one hill and the Israelites the other with the valley between them. Okay, the battle lines are drawn in the region occupied by Israel's greatest tribe, Judah. So big bad Philistines with Goliath against Judah, the pride of Israel, and Saul, the king they always wanted. Verse 4. A champion named Goliath, who was from Gath, came out of the Philistine camp. His height was six cubits and a span. He had a bronze helmet on his head, and he wore a coat of scale armor of bronze weighing 5,000 shekels. On his legs, he wore bronze greaves, and a bronze javelin was slung on his back. His spear shaft was like a weaver's rod, and its iron point weighed 600 shekels. His shield bearer went on ahead of him. Goliath stood and shouted to the ranks of of Israel. Why do you come out and line up for battle? Am I not a Philistine? And are you not servants of Saul? Choose a man and have him come down to me. If he's able to fight and kill me, we will become your subjects. But if I overcome him and kill him, 
You will become our subjects and serve us. Then the Philistines said, This day I defy the armies of Israel. Give me a man and let us fight each other. On hearing the Philistine words, Saul and all the Israelites were dismayed and terrified. The Philistines are so confident in Goliath that they are not even going to waste time or energy and risk an all-out war. They have chosen to sit back and let one man do all the work because they think he is indefeatable. Goliath alone will determine their fate, the fate of their entire nation. If anyone can kill Goliath, the Philistines will become Israel's subjects without putting up a battle. This is clearly a challenge directed at Saul. Saul is Israel's leader. He's their big deal, their first ever king, the one who is taller than every other Israelite. Surely Saul should volunteer. Didn't Samuel anoint him? Isn't God with him? The Philistines aren't buying that anyone is with Saul, and neither are the Israelites. They have lost confidence in their leader, and they are terrified, and Saul is with them. Saul and the Israelites are suffering from a lack of faith, and a lack of faith leaves the door wide open to fear. The stage is set for a battle with the giant, and in the next episode, David finally steps into the spotlight. What's a club without friends? If you're enjoying the Bible Book Club, why don't you share it? And then you can say, Welcome Welcome to to the the club. club. New episodes drop every Monday and get all episodes now on Amazon Music. As always, head over to susanme.com slash Bible Book Club for show notes from today's episode. Bible Book Club is hosted by Susan Merrill and Heather Rubio. Edited by Buck Buchanan. Produced by Haley Mawatt.